Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now. Blocknative is the easiest way to build and trade with mempool data. Hundreds of the top DeFi projects and traders have integrated Blocknative's API. Learn why at Blocknative.com. Fourth Holidays, today's episode is an AMA with questions I solicited from Twitter. Next time, if I get my act together in time and I'm not juggling five bajillion things at once, I will solicit them on the show so you can record your questions. So here goes. Zer Rez asks, what do you think about privacy designed blockchain? So it's kind of interesting because these blockchains are sort of under attack, I guess you could say, from regulation right now. Um, Meltem Demir has actually talked about this in the episode that I did with her and Lynn Alden. Um, where she said that that's kind of the main thing she'll be looking at for 2021. And I think, um, you know, we, at the, so at the moment that I'm recording this, we only have um, rumors about what type of regulation it was that uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin wanted to put on crypto right now, because I think actually, you know, privacy coins were in the crosshairs. And this was something that, Jesse Liu, who came on Unconfirmed, talked about uh, she was the, what was it, former district attorney, I think, for Washington, D.C. She's prosecuted um, a ton of cases ar- around um, some of the biggest ones involving like illegal use of Bitcoin and by actor, state actors like North Korea or, you know, by the the child porn website in, in Korea, Welcome to Video, and, and some of the other big criminals like terrorists and stuff. Anyway, point is she highlighted that um, as something that she was noticing in, I can't remember, it was the, the DOG enforcement framework, actually. And um, I do think that, you know, this is going to be something that comes up again because Brian Brooks, the acting controller of the currency, also kind of, you know, when I asked him about uh, what, how he thought the U.S. might regulate privacy, he said, oh, well, you know, the U.S. is different from the other countries because we're um, we're the victims of terrorism or, or something or we're subject to terrorism or something like that. And he said that he thought people would be willing to make a trade-off for that, which I thought was very interesting. I really was curious to know what the crypto community's reaction was to that comment. Um, But yeah, so I think we're going to see that kind of come up as a battle. And I actually, I would be surprised if in the end, there wasn't some way to 
have um, blockchains that feature privacy prominently because in a way, I can't imagine the, the technology really taking off in all the ways that it could take off if there wasn't such a feature. And you even see that like in um, a forthcoming episode I have on Unconfirmed, it's a panel discussion, but there is somebody from the Federal Reserve who talks about building systems for central bank digital currencies who says, you know, flat out, like, you can't design these systems unless you have privacy um, as a consideration from the beginning. He said it cannot be an afterthought. And, you know, and he's talking about for central bank digital currency. So I really do think that at least some of these blockchains will have to feature it prominently. And I, I don't think that we're going to end up with blockchains that just don't have it at all. I would be surprised, uh, you know, on a long enough time scale. I do think in the in the beginning there might be a bit of a battle, but I think after we get real adoption, then I would be very surprised if we don't start to see more privacy features. Um, somebody named P0 Ochre wrote, do you endorse the Stable Act? Um, I don't endorse anything that I feature on the show, um, whether, yeah, I, I just, I don't endorse anything. Um, I know a lot of people in the crypto community were very much against the Stable Act, which was the bill that was introduced by um, Representatives Rashida Tlaib and some others that basically said, you know, if you want to issue a stable coin, then you have to apply for a bank charter. And, you know, obviously their reasoning for it was a little bit confusing, which is what I asked him about the uh, one of the advisors to the act, Rowan Gray, who's a professor at Willamette University Law, a school of law. I asked him, oh, you know, Representative Tlaib said that she thought that the the reason for the act or for the bill was that it would prevent uh, stablecoin issuers from perpetrating the same types of crimes that big banks had perpetrated against uh, disadvantaged populations. And so I asked him flat out, how does turning stablecoin issuers into banks prevent them from doing the, the crimes that banks did? And you can listen to the show. He had great answers for pretty much every question I asked him, I thought. And, you know, I thought it was very interesting to hear his viewpoints. Um, but, you know, yeah, just for like, if you ever hear anything on my show, um, I wouldn't say that just because it's on my show that I'm endorsing it. And, you know, that applies for everything across the board. The Ceramist asks, do you think Facebook's DM, formerly known as Libra, is going to have a negative or positive impact on the broader crypto ecosystem? I think what will probably happen is that in the long run, it will have a positive impact. I think what might happen is it might be a little bit like AOL in that it, uh, you know, as AOL was to the internet in the sense that it might just get people into the the crypto world or into the blockchain world, I should say, and help them learn how to transact very quickly and easily with this kind of technology and just get them you know, into digital money generally and, um, and, you know, teach them like how to use a wallet and, and, you know, send transactions with your phone and, um, perhaps maybe even, you know, do other things or, or, or at least have access to be able to do slightly more interesting things with the technology. And so in that regard, like, I think just teaching people some of the basic behaviors around how to use it is going to be extremely useful. You know, one thing that I think kind of gives me pause in saying that it will definitely be positive for the broader ecosystem is just that because um, Facebook is as big as it is and because, as I said, regulation is going to play a bigger role in um, the world of blockchain technology, I believe, uh, than it did in the the Internet in general. 
Um, so I just wonder if the fact that it's an entity that can be regulated and that so many people will have access to this, I wonder if that will a kind of in a way um, just make it a place where people kind of stay rather than venturing off into some of the other blockchains. And that's something that I'll just be interested to watch it. It'll be kind of a curious thing to see if if that you know does happen. However, I'm sure as we are all quite well aware, Facebook is no darling of the regulators. And I think pretty much the vast majority of people would agree that giving a company like Facebook more power over yet another aspect of our digital lives, um, you know, maybe isn't the best idea. So, um, and I know people say that DM is, you know, not owned by Facebook, but, you know, it was created by Facebook. They hired a lot of the initial people for the foundation, et cetera. So clearly, you know, it's in the DNA of that organization. Um, you know, over time, who knows, maybe it will really be a lot more independent. Um, but there's just no question that from the beginning, it will be very, very tied to Facebook. So in that regard, um, it really could go either way. It really, it really could. Um, all right. So we're going to, let's take a quick ad break uh, right now. Uh, these are the sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you to them. And um, yes, in a moment, I will answer more of your questions. Today's episode is brought to you by BlockNative. BlockNative is the easiest way to build and trade with mempool data. Hundreds of the top DeFi projects and traders have integrated BlockNative's API. They even have Mempool Explorer, the industry's first no-code environment for working with mempool data. Mempool Explorer truly brings blockchain data to life, letting you watch mainnet transactions as they happen. Through the first quarter of 2021, unconfirmed listeners get double the transaction volume on all BlockNative commercial plans, as much as $25,000 in value. Visit blocknative.com slash unconfirmed to get started and claim this offer. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto, all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Okay, back to the rest of the AMA. Um, So Andrew Lee asks, what's one thing you missed from pre-COVID about the crypto community? Oh, um, what's one thing I miss? COVID. <laughs> oh boy. Um, you know, I think the obvious thing to say would be um, obviously the in-person gatherings. And that really runs the gamut in the sense that um, some of them are, you know, kind of like smaller gatherings of people that, yeah, are just like lovely and you, you know, just get to hang out and chat and, um, and just talking about all the crazy things going on in our world, um, which I really miss. Um, but I actually think a lot of those also happen around conferences. And so even as we all love to hate on some of the big conferences, um, just the fact that those do bring together such a huge proportion of people. And then um, we can all go off and, and have our separate meetings and, and little uh, dinners and parties and whatever Aside from that, like, I think, um, yeah, that's really fun. And um, yeah, I miss, I miss those. So, and I, I just want to give a shout out and thank you to all the people who've invited me to so many wonderful things, like in uh, some really lovely destinations as well that I've been able to attend and 
yeah, that was just something I never expected from falling in love with uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> um, but that is what uh, has happened to me and uh, has been a really fun part of the ride. Okay, Bad Crypto Bunny asks, how do we use B-chain, blockchain and crypto to weed out propaganda and false news stories? Okay, so um, this, I don't know if you guys followed that whole thing that happened with that startup Civil. It was like a consensus spoke. It basically was this media company um, or it, they were trying to launch their own blockchain, the civil blockchain with a token CVL that was going to, I don't even quite know, but somehow like I think verify the stories on the blockchain or, or something like that or put the stories on the blockchain. And they did actually attract some really big names. Like I remember, I think the uh, the CEO or the editor in chief or something was like a big name for NPR uh, unfortunately, I forgot her name. Um, but yeah, there were there were a lot of like, you know, people from well-respected publications that had joined in. And I do know um, Manoush Zamarodi, who does the ZigZag podcast. Um, she had done Note to Self before and I think joined up with Civil as, far, as part of the ZigZag podcast. And if you listen to the first episode, the first like season or two of that, you know, I mean, it's basically chronicling of like, first of all, the pitch to them and how they joined on and like how they thought like, oh, like this is going to solve some of the ills of our industry, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, then obviously the civil project ended up failing just because it did not raise anywhere near as much as it aimed to raise in its ICO. And so it sort of like never even got to get going. Um, and yeah, I, I now I... I actually, I should reach out to Manusha. I don't know what she's doing. Uh, I think she still does the a zigzag podcast, but I don't know how she's funding it. Maybe just normal ads or something. But the point is that, you know, I always was a little skeptical about how they were going to use the blockchain to verify their news stories. I mean, was it just going to be very discreet facts that were like easily verifiable. I mean, there's, there's obviously a whole subset of facts where, yeah, you could um, do it that way, but you'd have to phrase them just so because there's like 20 different ways you can state the same fact. And so what are you going to do? Put all those 20 hashes on the blockchain and they all represent the one fact or, you know, I don't know. So yeah, it, it wasn't clear to me how they were going to do that. And like, this reminds me of, I think it was like Stampery. There was some early, um, blockchain startup where, you know, I kind of like did a little interview with the guy um, just to find out kind of like how they were thinking about it. And it was some kind of, they were, they were pitching it almost like it was a notary. Um, but then I said, well, what if someone puts like a lie on the blockchain? And he was like, yeah, we're not going to, we're not verifying whether or not these are accurate. And so then I was like, okay, well then what's the point of this? Like if I just take a spam email that somebody sent to me at 12 noon on Friday and I stick that on Stampery, like, how was that useful? You know, I mean, and he was like, yeah, well, then we know that, you know, you had that spam email at that time. And I was like, okay, this is like, I was just like, why, why? <laughs> um, so yeah, so all of those kinds of similar questions, I think would exist for any kind of blockchain that aims to address the issue of false news stories. Um, because I think what would happen is, you know, you always do not always, but every once in a while, there is a news story that like needs some kind of correction on it. And so what then if there's like a tiny little fact wrong, that's like immaterial to the story, but you know, needs to be corrected. 
what then is the story somehow invalidated or I don't know. Anyway, so I just, I really, I don't know how that's going to work. So Jared Zemp asks, what are the best pick and shovel plays in crypto right now? Okay, well, hmm, you know, because we're uh, somewhere in the ballpark of roughly a year away from a Coinbase IPO, um, I would probably say... (laughs) Coinbase um, is, you know, I mean, clearly they're already sort of the proven on-ramp to crypto in the U.S., um, just the easiest place to buy uh, and just convert your fiat into any kind of crypto. And, you know, obviously now they also offer stable coins. So I think um, just in terms of like on-ramp, like I still feel like we're in the days where we need to just or where the industry would want to get more people on board and into the system and learning how to use this stuff. So, so that would be one. Um, I, I do think in general, uh, any kind of exchange obviously so far has proven to be, has proven to be a good business. I would say also that right now, I think we're starting to see a lot of kind of like specialization amongst the different players. So, you know, I know Paxos is um, serving as the back end for a number of big companies, including uh, PayPal. And so I think, you know, that is just sort of like a niche that they're carving out for themselves. And I could see a lot of other players picking different niches, um, you know, like whether it be custody or um, staking or, you know, whatever. So I think we're just going to see a lot of that. And I think any kind of company where you see somebody owning an important niche for crypto, that's probably probably going to make sense at this moment, rather than actually, uh, you know, some of the bigger, more wild things that are probably more exciting to the rest of us. So the last two questions are not, uh, like in the previous AMA I did last week, I had some about, about journalism and being a reporter and stuff. Um, they were a little bit more crypto focused. These are not, but these are just the last questions I have. Um, Matthew Mori asks, what distinguishes a journalist from an entertainer? Okay, I, I don't even know where this question comes from. I'm just going to answer it straight. <laughs> I, I don't think journalists really do their job thinking about um, necessarily providing entertainment. I think they come at the job from thinking about um, informing people, um, but also doing it in a way that is appealing to them and that will get their attention. Um, whereas an entertainer, you know, isn't going around like trying to figure out what the facts are um, in addition to getting their attention. They just want people's attention. So they're willing to, to say anything and, um, and whether or not they've fact-checked it is completely immaterial. So, um, so that's probably actually what distinguishes them. Uh, one does the reporting and um, make sure that, or, or tries to the best of their ability to make sure that all the facts are correct. And the other does not need to do that at all, which I'm sure actually is quite liberating, but <laughs> But yeah, that's not how we journalists do it. All right. Um, and then last question from Archon Faust is, what are your thoughts on the state of media and journalism in America? So I think the main thing that I think about right now is um, just the business model, which has come up a few times across the last AMA and this one, which, you know, like pretty much the whole of my career in journalism has been through this massive disruption of the media industry. And it's just so crazy because, um, you know, my first real journalism job was at newsweek.com. And the reason that that 
is very fascinating is because this was at night in in the year 1998 when um like newsweek was the thing but like newsweek.com like what was that like people didn't know what that was and i didn't know what that was and i show up and it's like you know, I, I forget, like somewhere between seven and nine people. And um, <laughs> it's just like this like little operation. And we only did, gosh, I think we only did like three or four stories a day. And they were very, very, very short. And um, it <laughs> was just, yeah. Uh, anyway, looking back, it was slightly comical now that we've seen what the internet has grown into. Um, but the point that I'm talking about is that when I showed up there, I was like, Newsweek.com, okay, great that I get to work with all these Newsweek editors, but I want to write for the magazine. Like, I don't want to write for Newsweek.com. And, you know, there were like a few very, very tiny things I did get to write for the magazine. And I was like so excited about those. And and of course, you know, I enjoyed writing, writing for Newsweek.com because I just love writing. And so that was super fun for me. But, um, you know, it was like the magazine was it. And I just did not see at all that the dot-com stuff was the future, even though my next job was at WSJ.com. Again, the dot-com, not the newspaper. <laughs> so I, again, was like, how can I get to the newspaper? And I remember at that time, like Kara Swisher worked at the Wall Street Journal and was constantly reading her. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, she has the life, like this looks fun. And this also was the time when the focus really was the newspaper in the sense that all stories were written for the newspaper. And the role of the website was simply to put the newspaper stories online. Like that was our job. And yes, we had other things we did. Like we took the wire stories and kind of from Dow Jones and like repackaged them for Wall Street Journal readers. And um, and there were there were some like special sections we did that were just online and things like that. So it wasn't like completely just this remote copy paste thing and like, you know, make it nice for the web. But, um, but that was like basically the main function. And obviously things now are so different, you know, things are like written for the web first and then whatever, you know, makes it to the paper, makes it to the paper. You know, the next job I had again, New York times.com. So, and, and even this whole time, literally this is over the span of, you know, I forget how many years, the first years of my career, I still always just was like, I want to be at the real publication, not the .com. <laughs> it took me so long. I, like, I think it was like, you know, like 10 years into this disruption before I realized like, oh, the web is the thing. <laughs> like, um, so the point is, all I'm trying to say is that weirdly, here I am um, 22 years later, and I'm a little bit like, oh, the media industry is only just now kind of figuring out the business model for the web. <laughs> um, you know, obviously the the experience of the New York Times with their digital subscriptions has been like huge for them. Um, you know, the Wall Street Journal got that like way earlier, but of course they have a lot of people who get their um, companies to pay for their subscriptions. Uh, but I think, you know, the Washington Post has seen a pretty good uptake on their subscriptions. And my old employer, Forbes, just instituted their their own subscription model, um, you know, before they were only advertising focused like most of the web. So I really think that and we're seeing this more and more, you know, Quartz, Bloomberg, I mean, just all these places, they all now have subscription based models, which is what it was like in the old days. You know, I remember growing up as a kid, my parents would, oh my God, our household was filled with magazines because they just subscribed to all these places. The way that they consume their media was to pay the media companies and get the magazines. <laughs> so I wonder if people will just pay more for media. Um, frankly, I hope so because that's how it used to be. Like, 
like I said, I literally think my parents subscribed to like, I don't know, at least 20 different magazines. Like I remember we got Newsweek and the and um sorry, Newsweek and US News and Time, like all three of them. You know, it wasn't like they just picked one. They got all three. Yeah, uh, I'm still curious to see how business models continue to get, dis- get disrupted in my own industry. Um, you know, I feel very lucky that um, I've managed to ride the whole the wave in the podcast boom to have my own shows that support me independently. Like, you know, this, again, has affected my own career. Again, it's like a disruptive thing in media. Um, but I think that I was like lucky. It was like just at the right time. And I was like somewhat early, not super early, but like early enough. So, yeah, so these are the main things I think about a lot when it comes to media and journalism in the States. It's probably not exactly what you were asking, um, but this is just what I think about because, you know, this is how I want to continue to make my living for the rest of my life. All right, you guys, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in. There won't be any news recap this week um, as we did last week because me and my staff are all off for the break. Don't forget, we are now on YouTube. Subscribe to the Unchained Podcast YouTube channel today. And Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with all from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, Shashank, Josh Durham, and this team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.